0: Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
0: You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze,
1: This week we have a special episode for you, an interview with Charles Pohl, now Lord Pohl, Margaret Thatcher's most trusted foreign policy advisor from 1983 until her removal in 1990. He's one of Britain's greatest geopolitical thinkers. Lord Pohl is the man who gave voice to some of Mrs Thatcher's deepest instincts in foreign policy, the man with a golden pen as one admirer put it to me, able to condense the Prime Minister's thoughts and his own into sparkling memos, which Mrs. Thatcher came increasingly to rely on, much to the frustration of the Foreign Office. In one such note in 1990, Lord Powell warned Mrs. Thatcher not to believe the hype that the fall of the Berlin Wall would mean the end of history, and that in fact a new world order would be even more difficult to manage than the old one, and that Russia must not be humiliated and made to feel as though it had lost a war 45 years after it had. Famously, it was also Poll who wrote Mrs Thatcher's Bruges speech in 1988 which called for an entirely different Europe to the one being constructed by Jacques Delors, the Commission President at the time. While the speech was never intended to be anti-European, it quickly became an inspiration for a whole generation of Eurosceptics, many of whom would go on to lead the Brexit charge in 2016. Given the state of Britain's relationship with Europe today and the war raging in Ukraine, I thought it would be fascinating to hear Lord Pohl's perspective on the world order today, and how Mrs Thatcher might see it if she were still alive. I hope you enjoy.
0: Britain does not dream of some cosy, isolated existence on the fringes of the European community. Our destiny is in Europe,
2: as part of the community. That is not to say that our future lies only in Europe. But nor does that of France or Spain, or indeed of any other
0: member. The community is not an end in itself, nor is it an institutional device to be constantly modified according to the dictates of some abstract intellectual concept, nor must it be ossified by endless regulation. The European community is a practical means by which Europe can ensure the
2: future prosperity and security of its people.
1: So that was Mrs. Thatcher's famous Bruges speech from 1988. And with me now is the author of that famous speech, uh, Lord Pole. Lord Pole, how does it feel to listen to that now and listen to your own words being (laughs) read by, by the Prime Minister there?
2: Well, it's obviously to a degree nostalgic, but I think basically it's how well she got the message right that there needed to be change in Europe and in a whole lot of ways, but in the freeing up the internal market and free trade with the rest of the world, a close relationship with America, and not the constant focus on institution building in Europe, which was really an excuse usually for inaction on issues of substance. So... I think she was right to deliver it. It didn't go down very well with a lot of European governments. And indeed, you know, she never wanted to speak at the College of Bruges, but the Foreign Office had insisted over two or three years that every other European head of government had done it and Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands had done it, so she really ought to do it. And um, as life sometimes happens, she was compelled to be in Downing Street in August and uh, with nothing much to do, and so we started to talk then seriously about what she wanted to say. And the, the views which came out of the speech were very much her views. I, mean, I don't claim any, any sort of right of um, ownership of the views at all. I only tried to help articulate them in a way which would um, help make a good speech. Um, the Foreign Office were not very pleased with the various drafts that came through and uh, made their views known. And uh, we tried to take account of some of them. But basically, she didn't want to give just a standard pro-EU speech of a sort of politically correct sort. She wanted to express some sharp views about the future, the future of Europe and the future of Britain in Europe. But one thing it never was, and this is so important to remember, it wasn't anti-European. It wasn't an attack on Europe. It was criticism of Europe, but she criticised Europe all the time and so did other leaders. And above all, it never was seen at the time or subsequently as a rationale for leaving the European Union. That was never Margaret Thatcher's view, never at any time when she was prime minister did she express that view.
1: Well, it is interesting in that clip how she says that Britain's future is in Europe, just not the not the Europe that her opponents at the time were creating, Jacques Delors and, and yes. others. And that's the fascinating thing. We're going to come back to Brexit and Britain's place in Europe and what might have been different had that speech been delivered a few years earlier, if circumstances had changed. The other fascinating thing about that speech is the way, as you say, it's pro-European, but it's of a Europe that was bigger, in her view, from the one that existed at the time, which... Remember, this is before the fall of the Berlin Wall, mm. before the collapse of the Soviet Union.
2: Bigger and more outward looking, I think it's important to say. Europe at the time, she saw as being far too concerned with its own
1: internal development. Yes, uh, this is sort of little Europe mm. uh, exactly. in a way. And and she name checks some great European cities on the other side of the wall, Prague and and Budapest as great European cities. And again, this is something that probably the Foreign Office would have taken out, as I understand it. But she insisted on... These are European cities, we need to think like that. We are speaking after the extraordinary events in Russia over the, over the weekend. What strikes me is she wouldn't have thought of putting Kiev there or one of the cities in the Baltic states. Can you talk us through her mindset at the time and, and would it have even been possible to think of putting Kiev on that list?
2: You have to see it against the background that Margaret Thatcher had a strategy for helping to bring about the end of the Cold War. And that strategy had really two great pillars. One was developing the relationship with President Gorbachev, whom she had been pretty well the first uh, head of government to spot and develop a relationship with, and the other was to work at chipping away at the Soviet Empire through Eastern Europe, and that's why she did a round of visits, starting with Hungary, I remember. I think we went on to Poland next and then the Czech Republic. But mentally, I think we drew a clear distinction between Eastern Europe, which we thought independence from the Warsaw Pact, from the Soviet control would be feasible, and Ukraine, which was deeply embedded at the time, still in the Soviet Union. So we just didn't think of it in that category. Now, she did actually go to uh, Kiev I can't honestly remember what year. I think it would have been after the Bruges speech anyway, when it would have been fresher in her mind. And indeed, it was a very significant visit. I remember it all too well. We went to the the beautiful Parliament building there, and she was shown round by the President of the Parliament, and then up to um, the floor in his office, where he swept aside a curtain, and there was the whole... Ukrainian supreme Soviet sitting down there. And he said, now, Prime Minister, you can give your speech. I'd assured her there wasn't going to be a speech. And <laughs> she just looked at me and said, no speech, Charles.
1: <laughs> and then delivered absolutely brilliant off the cuff speech. This takes us into this period of time, which is crucial to understanding our own time, in a way in that. Mrs. Thatcher, as you say, had developed this relationship with Gorbachev, and then she had to deal with his declining power and the rise of this dominant figure in in Yeltsin. And Mrs. Thatcher had gone to Moscow, she'd gone to Kiev as Soviet power was starting to crumble, And I was reading uh, Charles Moore's extraordinary biography of Mrs. Thatcher and volume three in particular deals with this time and reading some of the memos that you wrote to Mrs. Thatcher about how to deal with Russia and the Soviet Union and how, I think in one memo you wrote, Russia couldn't be made to feel that it had lost a war 45 years after it had won one. And this was in relation to the unification of Germany afterwards. And then a, a second memo which you wrote again in relation to this unification of Germany question. You wrote it to Mrs. Thatcher ahead of a conference of historians that she'd organized or she'd asked for at Chequers uh, to discuss this. And you wrote a note saying, rather presciently, that this was not the end of history. This was not the triumph of national democracy everywhere and everything would be fine. You wrote that history would would be speeding up over the next decade and would have the rise of nationalism in Russia and, and, and elsewhere. How right that was. You must you must read that with some pleasure.
2: Well, I mean, sometimes difficult to recall exactly one's views from 20, 30 years ago. But I, I think you know, Margaret Thatcher got it right generally about the future in her views. But I would start the explanation with this, that She, in a way, had invested in Gorbachev in selling him to President Reagan, as it were, saying he must meet Gorbachev. And when they did, of course, that relationship developed and greatly exceeded in importance her relationship with him. But nonetheless, she was first in the field. Having invested heavily in him, she was very concerned that if the West pushed too hard on German reunification, he would be toast because the extreme sort of right-wing communists would have removed him, as indeed they did only a, a year after. Uh, and then all the money invested in bringing the Cold War to an end would, would would be lost. So that was that was really her her starting point for that. She was also concerned about the the weight that a united Germany would have in Europe, and uh, she wanted to approach unification in stages. I mean, her original idea was you would start with a confederation of the two Germanys and then a federation of the two Germanys and only then get to a united Germany as people got used to it. But in whichever configuration it was, she was adamant that we mustn't humiliate Gorbachev. We must take account of him and his views. And actually, she was a good deal softer on that than the Americans were. The Americans were pretty keen to uh, make sure that um, NATO forces could... Be present in the former
1: East Germany and Eastern Europe. It's quite interesting, isn't it, to look back at that period—the the sort of the Iron Lady actually being softer—and and by that point, of course, it was George Bush Senior who was president rather than Ronald Reagan, and perhaps she would have had more sway over um, the former president.
2: Well, I think she certainly had more sway over Ronald Reagan than probably than anyone else did. I mean, it was—I uh, uh, think a lot, of, a lot of the senior Americans actually resented the degree to which she had influence over. President Reagan. I mean, she admired him so deeply and also believed in most of the same things he did. And uh, But he liked her. He liked to allow her to speak, as it were, and sometimes it was almost as though she was speaking for both of them. With George Bush, her relationship was good, but it was never as close as the one with Reagan. Um, I have a wonderful picture on the, my wall at home of her and President Reagan with her with her arms wide. It looked just like a scene from Gone with the Wind, <laughs> and uh, that rather in a way summarised the relationship. They were equally tough in the early 80s, the, you know, the empire, evil empire and all this sort of stuff, because they wanted to break down communism. I don't think either of them f- thought at that stage that communism was going to disappear by the end of the decade. Indeed, I remember her saying, as late as 1988, we are, we won't see the end of communism in my lifetime. And yet, wow. two days later, you know, it had gone.
1: To press it in some ways and, and, and yes. not enough. Why do you think, emotionally or psychologically, she was she became softer towards Gorbachev and and this question of the Russian mentality, the Russian psyche, towards the end, to not humiliate them? What, what did she grasp about that, do you think?
2: Well, she grasped that we are approaching the end of the Cold War um, and and the collapse of communism, which had always been the aim. People didn't seem to want to articulate that so specifically, but this was, after all, what our foreign policy had been about, what European and American foreign policy had been about. And she wanted it to happen. It wouldn't happen by cranking up the pressure even further when the whole thing was falling apart, um, because that might lead to reactions, counter-reactions, and to... Uh, uh, the emergence of extreme opinions in Russia, and uh, possibly even in Eastern Europe. And she wanted to avoid that. And of course, one sees now that same argument applies, in a way, to, to Putin. Of course, he mustn't be allowed to win in Ukraine. But do we really want to see or have any role in the, the downfall of Putin? At the very least, we need to think carefully about that. We have no interest in chaos in Russia which was what it looked like at the weekend, of course. Well, it did temporarily, and we have to see whether it now develops further. But the idea of chaos in a country with thousands of nuclear warheads is a very daunting one. I think she would have thought the same. One has to be pragmatic about these things. We all know Putin has done dreadful things, but um, still our interest is to see a reasonably stable situation across that part of the world. Given the whole history of Russia uh, and the way that power had changed hands, whether it was from the execution of the Tsar's family to revolutions and so on, avoiding extreme outcomes is uh, is very important to us all. Well, I can't say manage these things. So it's not up to us to manage them, but at least not to uh, provoke the wrong reaction. I mean, can we be certain if Putin were to go that any alternative would be better? I don't think we can at all. I think it could be even worse.
1: Well, this this Prigozhin himself
2: would be worse. Um, uh, But he's not the only one. There are others too. There's the Chechen leader and uh, others now. Whether they're serious contenders, I don't know. It's so hard nowadays to read what's going on in Russian politics. In old days, at least you had them all standing on uh, the mausoleum taking the salute. You could calculate the order of precedence of the Soviet leadership. Now that's all gone. There is really
1: only Putin. No, it reminds me more of Sort of the, the 1920s, mm-hmm. early 1920s, when it looked just like chaos and British policy. I mean, Britain was a was a bigger player then, but we were trying to intervene in some ways and doing what we always do, just to intervene just enough to uh, annoy the situation <laughs> more, but not yeah. enough to actually do anything.
2: Yeah, I think that's a justified comment, but she certainly wanted to avoid the impression that we wanted to grind Gorbachev's nose in the dust. And she was absolutely right to, to take that view. And the Americans, I think, were still less convinced than she was that Gorbachev was a good thing. They remained a bit skeptical about him. And if you read memoirs of the time, you'll find that George Bush expressing that view, you know, is he really gonna get rid of communism? Will the system really change?
1: And um, she was convinced that it would, given the opportunity. If you were in number 10 now, I mean, I, I'd love to know what kind of memo would you write today? about the big picture. Let's focus on Russia for for, for now. And how do you think Mrs. Thatcher would be dealing with the situation?
2: Well, I'm not one for composing a a menu, um, uh, an advisory paper in front of a microphone in 30 seconds. (laughs) But uh, um, I think she would uh, certainly be very supportive of of Ukraine, and we we would probably have come forward with more weapons rather earlier in the process, as she was never one for delaying when she'd set her heart on something being the right thing to do. And she, she would be very supportive of the Americans, as she always was, as she had been over the bombing of Libya in 1985 and then in the first Gulf War yes. in 1990. Right. So I think all that side of things would not have been very different. I think her rhetoric on Putin would have been very strong. But she would have remembered, as people do seem to have forgotten, that about 10 years ago, we had developed a relationship with Putin's Russia, which included the NATO-Russia Partnership for Peace, which included Putin coming to NATO summits. I mean, there was a different session of the meeting where she attended. You know, And things were looking as though Russia was entering into a reasonable security relationship with, with Europe. No one mentions that at all now. It's you know, completely forgotten, that, that era. But it's only this 10 maybe slightly more than 10 years ago.
1: It was remarkable how history sped yeah, up so much.
2: Exactly, and people just neglected that. So that wasn't a wasn't a, a wrong thing to try and do then, and it wouldn't be a wrong thing to try and do now. But first of all, the pri- absolute priority has to be to ensure that he does not win in Ukraine. And I think
1: Margaret Thatcher would certainly have taken that view. Do you think she would have been impressed or a little hesitant about Zelensky himself? Is he the kind of person that would have grabbed her attention? or?
2: In a strange way, she would have found Zelensky perhaps almost a shade too informal in his, <laughs> oh, yes, yes. In his, <laughs> in his tailoring, to say. You think she would have told him to wear a suit? <laughs> Even possibly a tie. Um, <laughs> no, she would have admired him hugely for what he was doing, and that's what what, what really mattered. Yeah. And um, I'm sure she would have you know, received him in the same way that uh, subsequent prime ministers have done. It is the right, right thing to do. And of course, he's a great improvement on previous Ukrainian leaders. If one thinks back to recent history of the Ukraine and some of the corruption and so on that was, yes. the instability. People, again, tend to think now of Ukraine as some almost paradise. It wasn't at all. It was a shambles. The poorest
1: part of Europe.
2: Yes. And um, and Zelensky has improved that considerably. There's a lot more to be done. I mean, if we do get peace in Ukraine and they start to rebuild Ukrainian society, there will need to be an awful lot of checks and balances to avoid any relapse into into previous behavior and that brings up the whole question of joining the European Union which must be right for Ukraine it can't possibly be done in the short term really you can't just go one day being not in europe and the next day being in europe you have to get through all sorts of hoops and hurdles and levels of development but once a process starts then it will come come to a conclusion and one hopes it could be done reasonably rapidly with ukraine the more difficult question is is joining NATO. And there was a, you'll remember big arguments about that in um, 2008 and 2014, um, when the Americans believed that Ukraine should be invited to join NATO and France and Germany thought it shouldn't. Now it's the other way around, actually, where the Americans are more sceptical about Ukraine joining NATO and Europeans more open to it. Um, Henry Kissinger, who's a very wise man on all this sort of thing with huge experience, I was talking to him the other day when he was over here, and he, having initially been opposed to the idea of Ukraine joining NATO because it would be too provocative to the Russians and, as a way, almost justify Putin's argument that if the West had provoked the conflict in Ukraine by pushing too far to absorb a former part of the Soviet Union into into NATO, he has now gone 180 degrees round and believes that NATO should accept Ukraine now, his argument is that it would enable Europe to, well, the word he used was control Ukraine. I think he means sort of be able to prevent Ukraine taking actions which would be needlessly provocative, like attacking parts. of Soviet, I keep saying Soviet, you can tell my generation, <laughs> attacking parts of Russian territory. I think there's something to be said for that. If you're going to take on the obligation to defend a country, you need to have a reasonable hold on what it's going to do and not just give it carte blanche to do anything
1: at all. Defend itself, yes, but attack other countries, no. Well, I I guess to to a certain extent, that's already happening in that the West, particularly the United States, is giving Ukraine weapons that it could use to attack Russia. But the West is giving specific conditions on what it can do with those weapons. You're obviously
2: right. And uh, I think it's a sensible, sensible thing to do. I don't think my impression is that the Ukrainians are not pressing very hard at the moment anyway to have weapons which could attack Russia. They're much more concerned with getting proper air defences and acquiring aircraft which could deal with the uh, Soviet air attack, Soviet Russian air attacks,
1: than they have at the moment. What was um, Kissinger's view, and what, uh, what what's your own view on uh, the future of Crimea when it comes to this? You no, know, is is Crimea then a part of NATO, or, or 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 is that separated off?
2: Well, I can't honestly put words in his mouth because I wasn't absolutely clear. He's he's um, is quite clear that Sevastopol and that that area was always part of Russia and therefore would not be included in any 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 arrangement. But it doesn't mean the whole of. Crimea wouldn't be included. I just don't know. Yeah. Um, it's a question, really, at the end of the day, is what's, what's practical? I mean, are the Ukrainians really going to be able to, by their own efforts, get back parts of Crimea or not? And I you know, can't say that they're definitely going to. They're clearly finding it very difficult, sledding at the moment, to uh, make further advances. So I think they will make some, but will they get as far as being able to go over the border into Crimea? Personally, I'd be a bit sceptical about that because you can't tell the Ukrainians what they have to do. I mean, it's, it's their country which has been raped and occupied. Um, they have to decide what they can do and what price they're prepared to pay for it in terms of loss of human life, both amongst their civilian population and their armed forces. And we've got to leave them that degree of discretion to decide what could be the basis for any sort of peace negotiations. Now, personally, I'm very skeptical as to whether there will be peace negotiations as such. Because if you look at the way Russia behaves, how it's behaved in Moldova, how it behaved in Georgia, how it's behaved in Azerbaijan, and so on, it doesn't do peace negotiations. When it's got what it thinks the most it can obtain, it stops. And now you get de facto lines which then remain stable at least for a period. And I suspect that's the probably the most likely outcome in Ukraine, that the Russians will come to a standstill when they think they are not going to gain more
1: and that the Ukrainians will probably won't have the steam to force them to go further than that. I guess with Ukraine, though, although it will be their decision whether they want to continue the war effort, either in the Donbass or, or in Crimea, because they're so dependent on us, not just for weapons, but as you were saying, for, for the economic rebuild of that country, we do de facto get to decide whether they do continue to push. We can say, we won't give you any weapons for this next push. So we we do control, I mean, I say we, I mean, the, ultimately the United States controls that
2: decision. I think, honestly, that's a bit theoretical. I don't see any British or European government at the moment, anyway neglecting to go on giving Ukraine the means to defend itself and necessary advance back into its own territory. I agree with you that there's a greater danger with the US in the... In the event that President Trump is re elected, uh, that would be a danger because he's quite clearly uh, forecasting that he would not wish to uh, support Ukraine as strongly as the Biden administration does. And I'm speculation is he, well, he himself says he would get on a plane and fly to Moscow and have it out with Putin.
1: On day one. On day one. I think he's going to do a lot of things on day, day one. one yes. I wonder, I mean, j- just that you've brought President Trump up, how you yourself and, and Mrs. Thatcher would think about today's world. Because it's so different, isn't it, in many ways? So much more complex, ideologically at least. In that back, back then you had, a, you had these sort of two opposing ideologies and now you just seem to have... You know any number of nationalisms and power structures and dependencies financial and trade and and defense how how you would view the world as a whole when you've got obviously the prospect of President Trump coming back in the United States and then you've got China really now as the as the the principal challenge for any Western leader, I think now, and you're seeing multiple different ways of dealing with that from Berlin to Paris to London to obviously, to Washington. How do you see this? Is it it equivalent of the Cold War? Is it the new Cold War? Or is it something different?
2: Well, first of all, I I wouldn't want to put words to Margaret Thatcher's mouth. I mean, it's always a bad thing to say how people might have thought they were still alive. But I myself think that we are back in a much more 19th century world of great powers manoeuvring quite loosely amongst themselves whether it's America, whether it's Russia, whether it's China, the big European powers, and so on, and that is inevitably a, a less stable world than the one we've had over the last few decades, where there was a very strong, firm alliance on the western side, um, which has, as well, kept the peace and very largely until until recently. And you have China a bit withdrawn from the world. You have the, in Russia in a phase of decline and. What we are seeing is the end of that stability and the sort of the rule of law internationally that went with it. And we're getting into a more volatile period when China clearly wants to have much more influence on the world, consonant with its size, population, its economy, where India will certainly want the same, as it mm-hmm. overtake has overtaken China in the size of its population. And then there are powers like Saudi Arabia or rising powers. And you could draw analogies with 19th century Europe on that sort of thing. and uh, So I think that's the sort of world it's going to be. It's going to be much harder to come to clear decisions, negotiated outcomes and so on. It's going to be just going to be more difficult to to maintain. And how do you defend against it? I mean, we can't have, certainly Britain can't have forces all over the world. OK, we invested very, very heavily in a couple of aircraft carriers, but result has been we can't invest in anything much else, and that does mean that uh, we don't have the flexibility nowadays to uh, to play a, a, a role that we had even even ten or twenty years ago. So those those are all problems. In regard to China, I don't think we are facing a new cold war, or we don't have to be facing a new cold war. I don't think China wants a cold war, um, and I don't think really anyone in Europe does. I don't think the Americans do really. I do think the rhetoric in America about China has run away. It's gone far too far in describing China as the enemy. You know, it rather reminds me of what um, used to be called the missile gap in the nineteen fifties and sixties, when the Americans thought that Russians had bounded ahead in missile technology and so on, and America had got left behind and had to invest hugely to catch up with Russia and, uh, and so on. And it turned out then when all the information came out after the collapse of the Soviet Union, that actually the Americans had always been ahead by a long way, and it was quite unnecessary to have had such a panic about things. Um, There's a bit of that at the moment, I think, of saying, you know, the Chinese are such a challenge to us, they're going to be bigger than us. Well, yeah, the Chinese economy probably is slightly bigger uh, than Americans under one form of uh, calculation, but, but not actually in any real sense. It's probably still about half America, the real values of, of assets and so on. Uh, and the same with its armed forces. They're much bigger than they were, but China's a great power, and it's obviously going to want to have the same sort of forces as Russia and the US, um, just to, to be a great power. It's in a way our fortune that China has lain low for so long, but it, it was yeah. never going to go on indefinitely. We only have to go back into Chinese history to find periods when it has a exerted much more muscle, but never really in the world. If you remember in China, it was always within China. The rest of the world didn't really count, and whenever we tried to send um, an ambassador there like McCartney in the 1790s, they said, well, you know, hello, but uh, we don't really have much interest in you, all King George III, thank you very much, let alone your inventions and the wonderful things you say you're bringing us. We'll we'll just get on. If you wish to come and pay tribute to us, well, that's absolutely fine, but... uh, We don't uh, seek a role. I think it's very relevant that China has not fought any sort of war since the 1970s, and that really lasted about four weeks against Vietnam. And so it's not a country which is used to challenging, in a security sense, our interests, the rest of the world. The one exception at the moment, I think, is in the South China Sea and the fortification of rocks and uh, reefs and so on like that, which is they should not have done because they promised not to do it, and they probably went ahead and did it. But That is what I would describe as the only militarily aggressive action, apart, you have to say, from then looking at the position of Taiwan. Now, yes, they have tried to intimidate Taiwan with um, patrols and overflights and um, sort of semi-embargoes and all that, because they don't regard Taiwan as a Broad. It doesn't mean that we, um, uh, well, we do accept because the, the one China policy is so saying we 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 accept that doctrine too. But we don't accept that China should have the right to use military means to um, bring Taiwan under its control.
1: It's a strange old position though, isn't it? The Western position—it's that yes, Taiwan is part of China, but you you can't militarily bring it into China. We're just going to accept this strange fudge. I mean, we wouldn't accept it for our mm. parts of our own country, would we? I guess.
2: Well, I suppose the way we accepted it for uh, for Hong Kong, um, we knew there was nothing we could do to stop China absorbing Hong Kong at any moment, really.
1: Yeah, but we which were they
2: fortunate did. enough that Dengshan well, he did eventually after we we had signed an agreement for fifty years to keep Hong Kong's autonomy. We got through twenty five of them, yeah. probably better than most of us thought at the time. <laughs> oh, really? And uh, well, you know, you can't really take a view of the world fifty years down the road and believe you're going to be absolutely right in it. We couldn't have foreseen such a lot at the time. After all, the Joint Declaration was signed in 1984 and the autonomy started in '97. Where are we now in 2023? Could it really have gone on to 2043? Now we know what else has happened in the world.
1: I wonder then about Taiwan. Do you think it's in the West's interest to defend its independence? Or is this something you just have to Hong Kong style to say, hey... Look, this might weaken the West in the big picture, but it's better than a, a better than a war. Anything's better than a war.
2: Well, if you're asking from a British point of view, we're in no position to defend Taiwan. Let's, let's be clear about that. Um, Say so it, it would never arise. Um, I think we're quite right to oppose military action against Taiwan if the Chinese envisage it, but I'm not at all sure that they they do. I mean, obviously you get some threatening statements, and it's. Um, President Xi Jinping has refused to rule out the use of military force. But China has every incentive to avoid a war over Taiwan if it can find a means to bring about peaceful reunification. And once again, one forgets that, again, 10 or 12 years ago, there was quite a sort of emerging relationship between Taiwan and China. There were hundreds of thousands of Taiwanese businesses operating in the mainland. There were many flights every day, carrying tourists, and Taiwanese families wanted to see the ancestral graves and so on. And there appeared to be a relationship developing. Then there was political change in Taiwan, and it's gone the other way more towards being hostile to China. Who's to know whether it won't come back again the other way? If the Chinese were sensible, they could probably still lure Taiwan into an evolving relationship, which would make the whole concept of war to recover Taiwan absolutely unnecessary. The one key thing is that Taiwan must not declare independence because that would be such a provocation to China and would not be accepted by certainly us or Europe or I think I believe America.
1: Is that equivalent to Ukraine in a way then that the job of ultimately the. US president is to control Taiwan and to say, as Kissinger put it, of Ukraine, say look, we will defend your autonomy, but you cannot you cannot cross these lines. Because it's not in our interest.
2: Well, the US has never given Taiwan a defence guarantee, as we actually care about that. You know, they're not, they're not a sort of member of, equivalent of NATO or anything of that sort. Um, the US has promised to supply Taiwan with equipment to defend itself. And it, meanwhile, is also, in its own interest, patrolled heavily in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Straits and so on, because it has an immense interest, as we all do, in freedom of navigation in that area. So the US is looking after its own interests uh, and giving Taiwan the means to defend itself. It's not gone beyond that. Now, there was a moment a few months ago when President Biden allegedly misspoke.
1: He keeps misspeaking, actually, doesn't he? Talking
2: about defending Taiwan. But I don't think that is regarded as a formal American position. And every time he says it, it seems to be countermanded
1: by... um, officials in the White House and elsewhere. It does, but it keeps inching Mm. towards a different position, doesn't it, in the United States. So I think you had, was it President Trump who phoned the Taiwanese leader Mm. after becoming president? You have President Biden misspeaking. You had President Biden calling Mm. Xi a dictator Mm. the other day. I mean, we do seem to be heading toward more dangerous territory.
2: Yes. I mean, some of it's just, frankly, ignorant faux pas. Um, yeah. which is uh, sad to see, but it, it is the case. I mean, American presidents don't all necessarily uh, have the detail of Taiwan's position and they, all the 1971 two negotiations, the Shanghai communique and all that. It's all a bit arcane, I think, if you're elected president of the United States. Um, so I agree there's been some unfortunate misspeaking, but I, I think the Chinese know what's
1: real and what is... Um, what is what is mistaken. Let's turn it back to Britain then and Britain's future. As you say, you can't forecast 50 years hence, or even 25 years hence, as you were talking about Taiwan's position changing towards China. I couldn't help think of our own position towards China changing so dramatically since 2015. So over the past eight years, we've gone from declaring ourselves China's best friend in the West Mm. and positioning ourselves as this island within the European Union that would welcome Chinese investment. The city of London would be the the clearinghouse Mm. for Chinese currency into the position today where we are perhaps the most hawkish country in Europe towards China. I don't think there is a competition, actually. I think we are the most hawkish towards China. And the argument, as I understand it, is that Post-Brexit, we've felt that there is no choice, really, that actually we have to move closer to the American position. We have to tie ourselves pretty much to whatever strategy they're going for, because that is now in our security and economic interest. I mean, is that how you see the future developing?
2: No, it isn't, I'm glad to say. Not, not quite as clear-cut as that, anyway. I think we've begun, belatedly, to exercise some moderating influence on the US view as you will have seen recently, President Biden sent his foreign minister, Antony Blinken, off to China to start to take modest steps towards rebuilding a relationship with China and identifying areas where they can work together, obvious ones like the environment, but others too. And we are, I think, encouraging that process. We've played a moderating influence in the language which is used about China and our own integrated strategic review talked about China as an epochal challenge rather than a potential enemy. And I think all those things have been helpful. Now, there are those, on, particularly on the right wing of the Tory party, who don't like any sort of uh, drawing closer to China. But it, it, to me, they're completely irrelevant in their views, particularly after Brexit. We cannot ignore a market of 1.3 billion people. We've right. got to be able to do business with it. Now, we can criticise China for the way it's dealt with Hong Kong. We can criticise China for its human rights policy up in the north and the way it's treated people up there, the Uyghurs. But that's not incompatible. We're continuing to build a relationship. The Chinese are not idiots. They know that uh, people will criticise them, but they could still have a relationship with them. So I hope that will be pushed forward. And I think our present prime minister has got that message pretty firmly. And I'm sure he would like to go to uh, to China and have a meeting with Xi Jinping, and the same way that Chancellor Schultz in Germany is, President Macron is, because there's not, for no other reason, there's great competitive gains to be had there. And you know, British business needs that. Now, I speak, I have to declare an interest as somebody who was chairman of the China-Britain Business Council for 10 years, so I've um, got a built-in wish to see British business with China develop, as long as it's compatible with our security. And although there are one or two areas where it's probably right to restrict both um, the sort of technology we're willing to export to China and restrict a bit Chinese investment in the UK in certain very sensitive areas of technology, I think that is a perfectly fair Protection and after all, it's not as though British companies can invest in sensitive areas in China and can invest in um, what I would call ordinary business. But I hope we're edging back towards that, and we have to keep on side with the Americans generally. Which, as I say, I think they're now moving in the same direction, and we'll see. There's likely to be a summit between President Biden and uh, President Xi Jinping later in the year, whether in the context of an APEC meeting of Asian countries or or G20 meeting. So. I hope we are actually on the cusp of some change there. Now, it could be thrown off course by a military incident in the South China Sea or some rash statement by Taiwan or something. But I, I think that I think the Chinese want to repair things just about as much as most of us do.
1: There is the raw politics or the raw geopolitics of it and economic self-interest. And then there are questions like values and how much stock you place in that. I mean, I know Mrs. Thatcher herself... Saw the world in terms of those who share our values Mm. and and those who didn't. I think there was one meeting of the conservative philosophy group where there was this disagreement between herself and Enoch Powell over this question, where she said that she would, I think she was defending Britain's nuclear weapons and saying, we need these to defend Christian values and our own values. And Enoch Powell had said, you know, no, that's not, you know, that's not what we have weapons for. We don't defend values, we defend interest and she'd said something like nonsense Enoch I will send out my forces in to defend British values that is an interesting disagreement there one person put it between a kind of American Republican view of the world which which holds mm-hmm. values close and actually that's where Mrs Thatcher was and a traditional Tory view of the world which is I'll do a deal with Russia I'll do a deal with China I'll do, a, I'll, do I'll do a deal with anyone it's about British interests and I've always found it interesting that Mrs. Thatcher was on the re- kind of the Republican side, if you like. And that's the world that is emerging a bit now. President Biden talks about a, an alliance of democracies. I think the British state talks about a Democratic 10 emerging to, to replace the G7. So that's something that also has to be taken into account, doesn't it? How people feel. Well,
2: I'm glad to say I never attended or had to attend or would, would have considered <laughs> attending a meeting of the conservative values group, so uh, conservative <laughs> philosophy group, so... Uh, I I have no no knowledge of that. I think you're putting it a bit too starkly. All governments have an interest in their economies growing in supporting their own companies in foreign markets. Uh, World trade is essential to growth and growth is what enables you to provide security for your people and therefore you have to be pragmatic and therefore combine both the right and the ability to criticise countries which ignore democratic and human values and say they should do better. But cutting them off uh, altogether is just an extreme sanction that makes no no, um, no sense. Now, there's come a bit of a tendency now to constantly sanction everyone, including individuals. I'm not sure that really helps in, in the long term. Sanctions over history, in my mind, have not really ever worked. People said they worked in South Africa. They didn't really. They didn't really. It was a realisation eventually of the, uh, the white South Africans that they had no future in a country with apartheid. And I, I think one takes the same view. Margaret Thatcher actually took quite an interesting view. She would go to China and she would see the senior Chinese and the leaders and she would say, look, We'll discuss human rights in private and I will give you hell on the subject, but I won't say a word to the public or the press afterwards. I'm not here to, as it were, try to draw attention to myself and uh, make this uh, something to put myself in a flattering light. No, I want you to get the message and I might ask for the release of certain people or so on, but I don't regard making a great song and dance about it in public serves anyone's interests. Now, I think there's quite a lot to be said for that approach, but too many people nowadays seek
1: to justify themselves by uh, making a huge song and dance about these things. Yes, I, I, And let's turn then finally to Britain's relationship with Europe, which is obviously what the Bruges speech is now remembered for. And the Bruges speech influenced the Bruges group that was formed shortly afterwards, campaigning for a for that vision of Europe as they saw it, which obviously became a source of inspiration for Brexiteers in time. The Bruges speech now is looked back upon as this defining moment in Britain's relationship with Europe. As we heard at the start, it was a, in some ways, a pro-European speech and certainly not seen as a Eurosceptic as we came to know it. It was advocating a different type of Europe. I think what's interesting, though, is that she really did lose that fight. The Europe that she wanted didn't emerge. And so I guess it's reasonable for people to draw the conclusion that if that Europe has not come about, then I don't want to belong to the Europe that exists. Well,
2: certainly the Europe that emerged was not her ideal of Europe. But it was never going to be. I mean, it's no one's ideal. It's not even for the most ardent Europhiles, it's still not ideal particularly our, our role in relation to it, of course, with, with after uh, after Brexit. But Margaret Thatcher was pragmatic in that. She believed that eventually there would be a Europe at different levels. Maybe it was called, what um, was it called, multidimensional Europe? Not all countries agreed the same degree of unification, unity in Europe. Uh, there were opt-outs, and she would, I think, have been a champion of opt-outs, where we thought our interests were not best being served by being in a particular European policy. Um, John Major, of course, was the one who negotiated opt-outs. I think mean, she could have lived with a Europe in which Britain was not committed to the most advanced steps, whether it was on monetary union and the euro or in some other, particularly to do with taxation, for instance. She would never have agreed to a European tax, and of course, it still has not emerged, so it is the aim of some people. So I don't think one could say that she could never have coexisted with Europe as it's emerged so far. I think she could. For me, the more important question is, Brexit happened. Was it wise? Well, that's irrelevant in a way. Because it's what happened. I mean, people were consulted. They had their chance. They gave their view. And one has to live with that. But what we can do now is negotiate a much better relationship with Europe, even though we're out of it. And that, for me, should be the priority of any future government. It should be to get a better deal for us with Europe and for the Europeans with us than is on the table at the moment. Because really, the Brexiteers not only wanted us out of Europe, they didn't want anything to do with Europe. That is a great mistake. You can't just ignore your nearest neighbour, a huge market, the biggest market in the world, on your doorstep. It makes no sense, particularly when you can't have a trade relationship with the United States, a trade agreement, it doesn't want one. And you can't have a trade relationship as such with with China, because it doesn't want one, a trade agreement. So I, again, am in favour of pragmatism about this, instead of the pure milk of Brexiteer doctrine. It damages us rather than helps us.
1: Then Mrs Thatcher herself embodies, I think, some of these contradictions between pragmatism, And Euroscepticism, she believed in sovereignty and came more and more to believe in sovereignty, I think, towards the end of her premiership. And then subsequently, and maybe we can come to that in in a moment, but she's obviously also responsible for the deepest or the, the biggest giveaway of sovereignty, if you like, with the European Single Market Act, which we have now left. Uh, so what is Margaret Thatcher's record? What is she responsible for? And what is she not responsible well, for? Well, first
2: of all, to tackle that thing about the the, the you know, Single European Act, uh, that, I mean, she had faced a very clear choice then. Her priority was to get the single market agreed. You know, Europe and Treaty of Rome had been there since 1957. No one had done anything in all that time after to create a, a market in Europe with no barriers and so on. She thought that was the most important thing that could be done in Europe the thing which should best serve British interests. And it was quite clear that that could not be achieved unless there was qualified majority voting in some areas of Europe, because countries just wouldn't um, agree to open their markets, take down the barriers um, unless they were compelled to by by majority voting in in Europe. So in the end of the day, she didn't really have a choice. She thought it was more important to get the single market than it was to stand out for unanimity on every aspect of of Europe. What she subsequently felt was she had been diddled, rather, by the Europeans, who then applied qualified majority voting to an ever greater number of subjects and issues in Europe, uh, which she had not envisaged and had not been agreed at the time, and that also they allowed the Luxembourg Compromise, which was a way of enforcing unanimity in Europe, to be removed or just to disappear. So you can say you can fault her judgment in not foreseeing that happening, but um, I don't think think anyone could particularly have foreseen it. So I would be much less censorious in saying
1: that um, she had uh, been inconsistent on these things. I accept your point, but she came to feel that she'd been diddled, as you say, but also then became more and more... Fixated on the 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 notion of sovereignty, and I think to the point that once she'd left power, she became privately supportive of leaving once she had left, but not when once she was in.
2: We know the evidence is honestly is contradictory. I mean, I I used to see her at least once a week after she left power, quite often more, and she stayed with us in our family in Italy and so on. So I had plenty of opportunities to hear her views informally personally and close at hand. You can find examples of her saying that we should one day have to leave Europe. You can find plenty of more public statements she made saying that our place was in Europe, as she had said in the speech. So she was capable of expressing both views. I'd have to say that I wouldn't rest an assessment of Margaret Thatcher's views or her assessment of the world or her part in history on statements she made after leaving power. It's no secret that uh, she had some decline in her uh, mental powers in that, that stage. And I don't think one should exploit that in order to claim things which were not deeply considered uh, and considered against the background of the constraints of being in power. I mean, being in power does impose clear constraints on what you can say and what you can do. And I think at, at those times she was was consistent in what she said and did. And when necessary, she was prepared to make
1: concessions if she thought it secured the greater good. When would you say Mrs. Thatcher was at the height of her powers? Because not talking about decline mentally, but a decline in effectiveness, did that begin in power? And and when do you think that was?
2: Well, personally, I've always dated it to um, Lord Whitelaw having a heart attack at a carol service in 1988, wasn't it? Yes. Um, He was the essential buffer between her and her government and her and the the party. And his wise advice kept her from um, being too tough on some of her own cabinet ministers and so on. But there's no doubt that after 10 years in power, she had become perhaps rather over-assertive. And uh, (laughs) and, uh, I'm trying to be as diplomatic as I can. And um, uh, too hard on some of her colleagues and made them harder to win their their support. But, you know, she, I mean, it was pretty remarkable that after 12 years, even in the party election, which eventually unseated her, she had to win a majority plus 15%, and she won a majority plus, I think it
1: was 13%. I think Theresa May would it have taken very, that. was very close.
2: And it was not as though she had lost all support within the party. No, not at all. She won more votes than Michael Heseltine did in, mm. uh, in the leadership election, clearly more. So take all those things with a a pinch of salt. But I would say that this is a letter which I actually wrote to her privately at the time, which I'd entirely forgotten about until the BBC dug it out about 20 years later and read it out to me uh, on a live broadcast, which in effect said that really after 10 years, you'd be wise to think about standing down because the strain on has been enormous and probably too much and... A lot of other countries have time limits of eight years, like in America and so on, in your own interest. I think you should consider it. Well, she didn't.
1: (laughs) It takes a brave man to write that to Mrs Thatcher, I think. How did she respond? Rash,
2: I think. She never really responded directly. She acknowledged she had received the letter, but... uh, We never again discussed
1: it. Well, she was capable of prescience that even after leaving, there was a speech she gave in the United States afterwards. You know, she had been removed from power in in large part over her European policy, her uh, opposition to uh, European Monetary Union. And she gave a speech about how the consequences of this would be the unchecked flow of uh, workers across Europe, the rise of populist parties. The speech is is remarkable when you read it back in terms of its um, ability to see what had happened. That is fascinating. And this world of being opted into some parts of the European Union and opted out has been referred to by people like uh, Neil Ferguson as this Brexit 1.0. that It it stored up these consequences that happened in 2011 in the Eurozone crisis, when it turns out not only did we not have the Luxembourg compromise to fall back on or being outvoted by by the other European Mm -hmm. powers, even where we had a veto, it turned out that it wasn't as strong as we thought. In that they could always come up with intergovernmental ways around it, and that, that was really the spur for David Cameron's renegotiation and Brexit referendum that we had. It turned out that we weren't as protected as we thought, and, and he you know, decided perhaps rashly that that required the, the sort of the ultimate trigger of a, of a referendum threat.
2: there's I think valid points to make. I think the counterpoints would be that uh, if you look back on Margaret Thatcher's record of negotiating in Europe. It was pretty good. Above all, getting our money back. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. Billions and billions and billions of pounds yeah. to this country, which had been taken away by Europe. And there were things on um, on agricultural reform. Mm-hmm. Europe agriculture would never have been reformed at all. It never was reformed enough, but at all, if she hadn't been the one who dug in and insisted on it and, uh, and so on. And there were other examples, a bit unsung these days probably, where she she was quite good on negotiating our way. On, on the single currency, it was very, very simple for her. Your currency is an essential element of your sovereignty. Once you give away your currency, you've given away a very significant slice of your sovereignty. Therefore, we can never do that. Uh, she had, even there, um, espoused one or two partial solutions. Do you remember the hard AQ? Not exactly subject of um, conversation in the local pub these days, but it was, for a while, it was... a uh, I think it was an attempt to sort of not make the split too definitive between us and Europe on, on currency things. It was proposed too late and never had a chance of, of being adopted. But I think she was absolutely right on, on the single currency. Uh, you can argue we would be better off now in the present sequences had we joined the single currency, but there was never any question do, of it do, happening. Do
1: you think that? Do you think we'd be better off inside?
2: I don't, actually. No, I really don't. I mean, I can see arguments which uh, would suggest that to be the case, but I really don't accept them. I do think she's right. And fundamentally, uh, your currency your, is part of your sovereignty. And uh, even though, it's cost, the pound sterling is not what it once was, it, uh, it is still gives us the, the flexibility to pursue our own
1: economic and financial policies. You mentioned the hard AQ there. I, I think it's fascinating because I think you could tell the story of Britain's relationship with Europe all the way going back to the, you know, the Schumann Declaration, all the way through. Mm-hmm. Is, is We are constantly trying to find clever compromises and ways of uh, dealing with the European Union without accepting the full principles that lie behind it, uh, which are, you know, radical and noble to have a supranational organisation with all that comes with it. And often we don't succeed because they're not accepted. You know, the Hard Acre wasn't accepted. Macmillan's free trade deal wasn't accepted. You know, we don't often, we're not often in the driving seat. So we have to make compromises not on our own terms. I suppose to finish this um, discussion, I wonder what you would think now about what kind of compromise is possible with the European Union that that somebody like yourself, Mrs Thatcher, would think of as acceptable? How much sovereignty could you give away in terms of accepting rules made in Brussels? How do you get to a to a better situation than we are in now?
2: Well, I would start certainly with defence, security and those sort of matters. I think our separation from Europe on those matters was unnecessary, even in the Brexit context, because of course it was not necessary to do with membership of the European Union. But we should, we would be much better to develop a close relationship again in Europe with those sort of matters, because there's no doubt we preserve our sovereignty on those, but we um, we take part in cooperative things. Uh, exactly as the Wu speech said, you know, there are things we can do better together than we can do separately, and things things which we're much better to retain as separate sovereign rights. And I think that is the, the correct way to approach these matters. But um, I'm not sure I can give you a really a better answer than that. Should we be conceding the areas of policy which we would accept European regulation as the price of being involved ourselves without having any say in that regulation, mm. I think that would be very difficult to accept. I think it's incompatible with Brexit, and Brexit is what's been agreed. That is, uh, what the, thats That has been the nation's choice, and I think you have to accept that and honour it. Um, so there's plenty of room for cooperation um, without having to adopt European policies in, in in detail. And in a way, I think the Windsor Agreement showed that you could make that sort of negotiation. I don't pretend to be an expert in the details of the Windsor Agreement on Northern Ireland, but it seemed to me to be that sort of what one might call a mixed agreement. Well, we did in effect accept some aspects of, uh, of what Europe um, decides and even the looming presence way in the background of the European Court of Justice, it's deeply veiled, um, for some elements, I'm not saying it's an actual model. Yeah. I couldn't think of this you know, at the moment of anything
1: else. I just find it very hard to see Mrs Thatcher agreeing to a trade border within the United Kingdom. I think that that seems a push to me.
2: Well, I wasn't actually talking about Mrs Thatcher. I was talking no. about me, but uh, <laughs> yes. it's rather less significant. <laughs> well, I don't think... It was amazing that uh, Boris Johnson agreed to it in the first place. Well, he, he I'm not sure he knew. I'm not
1: sure he knew what he'd agreed to.
2: Well, that might, might be the case. No, because she, well, she was a very strong unionist, and uh, so you're right; she would not have done that. But I was trying to reach out to look at what, if you were looking to the future, what a what I would call a mixed agreement could possibly how how it could work. The pragmatism
1: in her, perhaps. I mean,
2: if you look at the agreements which the various Nordic countries have had with the EU, which Switzerland has with the EU, uh, there are sort of things you can look at there and think, well, it might be possible to make that work. Um, I really don't want to go to details, so I really don't have the details in my head anymore. But um, it's not impossible. But my main point remains, I think it is possible to have a much more effective, cooperative relationship with Europe post-Brexit than the one we have at the moment. And I hope that whoever wins the next election of this country will make negotiating that a priority, because I think it's essentially in the country's interests.
1: Well, I agree that will definitely happen. Well, Lord poll thank you so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much thanks for listening to this week's episode i hope you enjoyed it if you did please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts share on social media and shout about it to your friends and family
0: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time